As we open God's Word and listen to His voice, Jesus be with you. We especially greet our audience online, and uh, it's good to have you joining us this morning. It's great that we can worship together. The, the summit of our worship today will be right after the message when we come to the table of the Lord. So I want to just be sure that everyone has the elements, and if you didn't, feel free to get up and take a walk while I preach and go out into the hub and get the elements. And uh, we look forward to being with Jesus at his table this morning. This is the final message in a series we've entitled Hallel, and uh, Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise, and you hear it in the religious expression that we often say in churches, hallelujah, which I want to remind you is not actually something we say to God, but it's something we say to one another. Praise the Lord, you over there. Praise the Lord, you over there. We're urging each other to praise, and why praise? Because You love what you praise, and you praise what you love. And it's an invitation to connect with the heart of God and your heart. And so, hallelujah. And 118, this final psalm, is interesting for two reasons. One, it seems to be a song for a king who is trying to encourage his people during a very difficult time. In fact, Old Testament scholars think that it may have been what's called a processional psalm, which was written and performed when a king would enter the ruling court to give pronouncement to the people. The other interesting thing about Psalm 118 is that it's an antiphonal psalm, which means when it was sung in the uh, temple of Israel, It would be from groups of different people positioned around the room, and it would have this kind of amplifying, unifying effect of uh, hearing it from different voices throughout the room. We're going to do something similar to that this morning. We're going to read the entire psalm responsively, where I will, as a minister, uh, lead, and you as people will uh, give your heart, your hallelujah, as we read this psalm together. And I know you've just stood for 20 minutes, but I would like us to stand again in a posture of reverence today as we do the hallelujah. So please, read this as if you're trying to encourage someone on the other side of the room to read it with your heart. And one other thing, I know I'm getting like way down in the weeds here, but remember when you read together, the goal is not to finish first. (laughs) So listen to the people around you and make sure you're in unison reading together uh, as we do. So Lord, this is for you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. 
all the nations surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense, and He has become my salvation. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. With bowels in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, great work there. You could take that on the road. It's awesome. In the rotunda, the nation's capital, on display is a painting by John Trumbull entitled, The Declaration of Independence, the 4th of July, 1776. It's believed to be the most viewed painting in the history of the American people. The irony is that everything about the painting is inaccurate. First of all, no one signed the Declaration of Independence until August the 2nd. And then representatives came as they were able to come from the colonies over the next few months. And then the scene itself, how can we say it? The chairs are wrong. The doors are in the wrong place. There were no draperies on the windows. And those military banners hanging on the wall a figment of Trumbull's imagination. What is accurate is the 47 faces of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Trumbull wanted every face identifiable and thus accountable. He wanted it known that this is not an edict being passed down by a czar or a king, but a decision made by a Congress acting freely. These 47, we know some of the names, right? 
friends like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, enemies like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and short giants like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Paul Johnson, ironically, the great British historian, called this gathering of leaders the most powerful, collective, effective group of leaders that has ever been assembled in the history of the Western civilization. He goes on to say this in his book, The History of the American People, great events in history are determined by all kinds of factors, but the most important single one is always the quality of people in charge. And never was this principle more convincingly demonstrated than in the struggle for American independence. Now, these founders were captured by a theological idea that every person is equal and endowed with certain unalienable rights. The question that we want to ask today as we go into Psalm 118 is, 245 years later, how is the American experiment faring? To help us assess it, I again want to go back to 1776 when on the other side of the ocean, a magisterial set of volumes was being written by a man, a historian named Edward Gibbon, called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon's work is the uh, magisterial, the uh, professional statement on the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, one of the points that Gibbon makes is that when Rome fell, and like every of the 21 great civilizations that had risen and fallen to 1776, the, the push at the end came from an outside enemy, and the tree fell. But Gibbons argues that one of the reasons the tree fell was because of the internal rot and decay that had been going on within the country for many decades. Here are the internal factors of decay and rot that caused the fall of the Roman Empire, according to Gibbon. And I would ask you to assess the American people and the American Empire by these same criteria. Number one, a devalued currency, which means massive debt, which means undisciplined spending, which means avoidance of personal sacrifice for the greater good. Number two, the disintegration of the social structure, those foundational relationships that hold the fabric of society together begin to fray, begin to pull apart relationships, identities. They begin to be replaced by the whim of the empire and the woo of the people. Number three, the overuse of the military. At the end, Rome had spread its military across the known world, and it was taking massive amounts of resource to fuel that military power, which took it up to number one. 
And then lastly, (laughs) the presence of Christianity. Gibbon hated the Christian movement. He said that Christian doctrine made Rome soft. He admitted that the Roman Empire did everything it could, persecution and pressure to stop the Christian movement, but it could not stop it. Indeed, history is determined by the quality of the person in charge. I submit to you that July 4th is good, but Jesus is better. We're going to see why from this procession psalm of a king. You may have noticed as you read it that some of the language sounded familiar. The reason is because it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it points dramatically to Jesus Christ. And what we'll see in this psalm, as Jesus walks into it when he comes on earth, is why Jesus is better. First reason, he's love. Love. Did you notice how often we repeated the phrase, uh, his love endures forever? I want to say two things about it. One, it's the word, and we talked about this last week, hesed. It's this great word of the Old Testament, a foundational word. It's, it's translated often as steadfast love or love that endures. It's this idea of a love that's a decision backed by character. In other words, if I can put it in personal terms here between you and me, if I show you hesed, it means that I make up my mind to love you. And I will seek your best no matter how you respond, no matter how you perform, no matter what circumstances I give to you, I will seek your best, and I will back that promise with my character. This is a relentless love of promise. It makes the Christian God unique among all the world religions because in no other world religion Does this kind of covenant love describe the God? In the Quran, for instance, this kind of covenant love, this word never appears. Any kind of love that's come sourced from inside the God. It always depends on the performance of the people. This makes the Christian God unique. This makes the Christian God attractive. What's interesting is that Did I say it already? It's used 250 times in the First Testament. But it's used one very important time on God's lips in Exodus 34 when he says to Moses, I am the God who led Israel out of Egypt. I am abounding in hesed, love, and faithfulness. Here's what you need to know. That's said in Exodus 34 to Moses as he's restoring Israel. Why is he restoring Israel? Because in Exodus 32, they had gotten tired of waiting for Moses to come down to the mountain, you remember? And what did they do? They praised a golden calf that they'd built. And they were saying, this is what's praiseworthy, and this is what brought us out of Egypt. God could have like wiped them out on the spot. They'd given their hearts to an idol. But no, He comes at him again, and he says, I won't stop loving you. 
I am a God abounding in love and faithfulness. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's our God. That's Jesus, King of love. Hesed. It's not only unique among the gods, it's this kind of love is very unique in our culture. We live in a culture of me happy first. We live in a culture of prenuptial agreements and fine print and free agency, sports and church. We live in a time where we say, let's just get, live together and try it out first. Into this kind of culture, this kind of hesed love comes from Jesus Christ as He processes into our lives and He says, look, my love for you is not based on your performance. We're not just going to try this out. I am committed to you no matter what. My love lasts through your sin. My love lasts through your health problems. My love lasts through your family problems. My love lasts through your job. My love lasts through your recession. My love lasts through a Democratic president. My love lasts through a Republican president. My love lasts. And it outlasts. It outlasts the buzz of booze. It outlasts the high of weed. It outlasts the smell of the new car. It outlasts fake friends, and it outlasts real enemies. His love endures throughout all generations. Hesed. But it's the hardest thing in the world to believe. When we mess up, when circumstances come into our life, when hard days are the habit, steadfast love endures forever. That's why we repeated it five times. That's why Hebrew parallelism in poetry is so full of repetition. Hey, be glad we didn't read Psalm 136 where that same phrase is repeated 26 times. 26 times. Now, I've gotten emails over the years from some of you just saying, why do we sing these 711 courses? Same seven words repeated 11 times. I've usually been very kind to you and said, yeah, some of those ones we sing, you know, even I get irritated, like, when are we going to be done with this song? But if I'm your friend, I'm going to push back on you a little bit and say, well, let's remember that all repetition is not bad. Let's remember that there's purpose in repetition. I mean, 26 times in one song? What's the psalmist doing there? Well, two things. The purpose of parallelism in Hebrew poetry is first to have you come in, sit down in the room, say things five, six times in order to get you out of that nine to five, hit the asphalt, got to get it done mentality that most of us live with every day and get you in a place where the emotion of the song is finally begin to settle into your heart. It's to get us to slow down and hear it. And do you know the second purpose? Memory. Memorization. You say something 26 times, it's there at least for an hour. It's there. You remember, it's like your parents teaching you, right? I bet we could go around the room and each of you would have a first phone number that you can still remember to this day. 
814-345-5131. That was my grandmother's phone number that my mom taught me because we lived in so many places growing up, we could never remember our own phone number. But we could call grandma. Same idea of our heavenly parents saying to us, look, I want you to say this five times today because I never want you to forget it. The steadfast love of the Lord is forever. What happens when we do remember it? What happens when we slow down long enough to let it register in our heart? Well, amazing things happen. We begin to live fiercely, like taking Paul's heart words to heart when he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And a little earlier, Paul had said, the reason you keep saying that again and again is because I've actually given you the Holy Spirit who's filled your life and your heart. And every moment of your life is lived in love, the love of the Father, where you say, Abba, Father. He wants us living in love. And then Paul writes in Colossians 3, not only can you be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it can lead you to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then once you're full of the Holy Spirit, he says, then you go out and whatever you do, do in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to the Father. Do in the name of Jesus. What's that mean? That means you take a day off from your life, Jesus steps in and lives for you. What does it look like? Oh, here's a great thought experiment. You want to do it together? Let's do it together. What does it mean to wake up in the name of Jesus? Think about it. Probably not reaching for your phone first thing in the morning. Probably dedicating yourself and this day to his authority. I mean go with it. I mean, what does it mean to work in the name of Jesus? Appreciating the common good that you are contributing to the world so you do it heartily, but even more appreciating the people you work with because God's eyes are always on them. What does it mean <laughs> to drive in the name of Jesus? You say, Larry, it doesn't get down to that. Oh, I think it does. In fact, I think it's those unguarded moments that kind of show what work's still left to do in there to get it aligned with the name of Jesus. What about TV shows? What did Jesus watch? PBS? Think on these things. Uh, what does it mean to love your family in the name of Jesus? What I'm suggesting to you is that when you repeat it and when it registers deeply, that love, it goes into you and comes out and recoils on others and recoils on the world and makes you, sorry, Edwin Gibbon, not soft like Rome, but strong like Christians. An unstoppable force. You walk out on the Roman Colosseum floor, you look up where the emperors used to sit, what do you see? A cross! A cross. You see that kind of love coming in, going out. It makes us an unstoppable force. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
It makes you this kind of person. Catherine Booth, whose husband, William, they founded the Salvation Army together. One time she was in Paris checking on some Salvation Army sites and she was scheduled to preach at a very rough part of the slums of Paris. And the police wanted to give her protection. But here's what Catherine Booth said to the police. I can't have your police protection. I won't have your police protection. Your police protection would drive away my audience. I preach Jesus Christ. He asked convicted criminals to come to him. I have protection that you know nothing about. You can't stop that kind of love. Folks, July 4th is good. We'll party hard, but Jesus is better. He's the king of love. He's also close. Secondly, verses 5 to 7, we read this about Jesus Uh, This is pointing to him, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. I want to point out two things. First, this kind of conversation that's happening here. The the Hebrew literally reads, when I was squeezed. We don't know what the situation was, but probably some kind of foreign attack on the country. But he was squeezed into a place. He cried out to God, said, help. And then the Lord in his mind, maybe not circumstances, but in his mind, gave him a room, opened up so Jesus could come in and begin to give his mind peace and wisdom and perspective. What can mere mortals do to me? It's this idea of close. Again, this is what makes God unique from all other world religions. Because in every other world religion, you have to go up to God. And you hope that your performance is good enough that you can meet him. But in Christianity, the God comes down. John 1.14, Jesus became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He comes down. Why? So that God becomes close. How close? Close enough that you can have a conversation with him. That you can say, help. And he listens. I always find this interesting. I've shared it with you probably 50 times. You say, this is one of your Larry's. Bear with me. Jesus didn't teach much on how to pray in terms of template. One time, he gave us the Lord's Prayer, and that's awesome. I mean, that's huge. Actually, next week, we're going to begin a series, six-week series on the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus much more talked about not the template, but the attitude, He told stories like, hey, you're you're in your house, knock on the door, three in the morning. Oh, out of town, Uncle George and Aunt Betty are here. I don't have anything in the fridge. What do I do? Well, you go over to your neighbors, Jesus says, and knock on their door and get them up. And you stay there and knock until they are up. And then you ask them for some bread to feed your out-of-town guests. And Jesus says, that kind of shameless audacity, I like that. Pray that way. Help! And keep talking until he brings the roominess to your mind. Closeness. Prayer is closeness. Prayer is conversation. But the second thing I wanted to highlight, it's not only a closeness in conversation, it's a closeness in help. Twice in the psalm, once as a noun, the Lord is our helper. And then later in verse 13, he says, the Lord helped me. That word is very interesting. It's the Hebrew word ezer. And the first time you read that word in the Bible was in Genesis 2, when God saw how lonely Adam was because Adam is made, as we all are, for friends and community. And remember 
what he did? He brought this great gal named Eve, and Adam says, oh my God, thank you at last. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, you sent me a helper. Literally, the Hebrew word means one who stands behind and has strength to supplement your weaknesses. It's often used in the military world, help, in terms of reinforcement. And what's interesting, really, is that when Jesus begins to talk about the Holy Spirit in John 14, he uses the word parakletos, which also comes from the military um, uh, world as a fighting term where you would be out in the field with your sword and your parakletos would be at your back, back to back. You'd be fighting 360, the, the parakletos looking out for you and covering your back. That's the Holy Spirit, our helper. He's got our back. He's close. He's standing behind us. He's supplementing our weaknesses. That's why Paul could say, reflecting on this psalm, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is close enough to talk to, and he has our back all the time. So we look at verses 8 and 9. The psalm applies this for us. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust other human beings. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Later on in the psalm, you, you probably, I think you all read this part. It talks about, or maybe I, I can't remember, um, the bees buzzing. And for Israel, the bees buzzing was the surrounding nations who were trying to attack Israel and oppress them. Here in America in the 21st century, I think we hear the bees buzzing for a little different reason. It's not that we're under attack by foreign nations. I think the bees buzz in America because of the honey, not the sting. What do I mean? I mean that we rely too much on politics to feel secure in this world. Why else in the world do you think we survived 2020 and all its division in the church over politics? It's because we think our party has the honey that will give security and freedom to our lives. We think that Jesus rides on the shoulder of government, and if we can just get the right people in the right places, the kingdom will come. I'm suggesting July 4th is good, but Jesus is better. I'm suggesting that the government sits on Jesus' shoulder. I'm suggesting that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm asking you, thought reflection, where's your refuge in this life? Where? Is it in humans? Is it in princes? Or is it in the Lord our God who we can talk to constantly and who has our back? I mean, we could lose our life. What's that called? an upgrade. We could struggle with our family. What's that mean? God has each one. We could lose our reputation. And what happens? You, you get to heaven, you get a crown, you get to throw it at Jesus' feet. You are a worshiper, always and first. We will find our refuge in King Jesus. Because he's love and because he's close July 4th is good, but Jesus is better because he's strong. Look at verses 15 and 17 through 17. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. 
The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. And then verse 18, or 19, I mean. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me and you have become my salvation. There's two metaphors here that describe the strength of King Jesus. The first is this idea of right hand. It's repeated three times. The idea of right hand is in the ancient world, warriors, you know, like most of us are right-handed and uh, it was just a symbol of strength because the, the, the right hand held the sword. In fact, there's stories told of battles where warriors held onto the sword so tightly that after the battle, they couldn't open their hand and their fingers would need to be pried off the sword. God's right hand is that strong. And he wins the battle. And he takes the position, Jesus does, at the right hand of the Father. He's the one whose word now is the pronouncement of history. And he's over all the nations, sovereign and powerfully directing history to its intended goal when every knee will bow before him. Right hand. He's leading. It's demonstrated above all this power of the right hand in the resurrection I mean, and we say this a lot at Waterstone, right? It's one of our mantras. Anyone who is strong enough to walk out of their own grave is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. That is Jesus. When you have power to raise the dead, you are unstoppable. I've never forgotten the play Salome, Oscar Wilde. Herod's court, bad King Herod, a courtier says, hey, I heard this story about this Jesus of Nazareth and he's raising up dead people. And Herod starts stomping around. He says, who told him he could do that? I forbid him to do that. He must be found and told that I allow no man to raise the dead. What is that? That's the bluster of a tyrant who's used to carving up the world in his own advantages. But Jesus takes away all the advantages for one. Follow him and you live forever. Or as verse 17 says, I will not die but live. Martin Luther, he had a hard life. Constant persecution. One time he was a prisoner in Coburg Castle in Bavaria. 165 days during the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. House arrest, thinking his life was over. He began writing reflections on the Psalms that would become, still in print today, his commentary on the Psalms. He makes a statement in there that Psalm 118 is his, quote, most beloved Psalm. Why? Verse 17, which he scrolled on the walls, which you can still see today if you visit. I will not die, but live, and I will proclaim the work of the Lord. When you practice resurrection like that, you are unstoppable. But it's not only the right hand, it's the gate of the righteous. The psalm says that before you get to that place of eternity and knowing Jesus, after the resurrection, 
First, you enter the gates of the righteous. You become declared worthy to live in God's presence. And how does that happen? It's because Jesus became, as we read, the chief cornerstone. The one the builders rejected has become the one who's become the stone that, on which the entire building rests. Why? Because Jesus is the one who came close in love and became one of us and not at risk of life but cost of life laid himself down to forgive our sins. This totally shocked. I mean, you can see why this psalm shaped the uh, uh, beliefs of the early church and their view of Jesus. Because this shocked them. Wait, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to win by weakness? Yes. Laying his life down. Wait, the Messiah is going to win by power of walking out of his own grave? Yes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My friends, as we come to the table now, I just want to be right up front and say this. My intent today was to ask you, is there any reason why seeing this King Jesus, July 4th is good, but Jesus is better, his love, his closeness, his power, is there any reason why you would not love him with every fiber of your heart? My goal has been to present the character and work of Jesus Christ and to say we were unworthy of even knowing God, but Jesus claimed and declared us righteous through his life and through his death, and in love he calls us worthy. That Jesus, though our sins had separated us from God, he came close, close to us, even close, a death on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be close to him. And this Jesus walked into the grave but walk through those pitiless walls of death and now turns back and says to you and I this morning, follow me. Even though you die, you live. Jesus wants you to know his love, experience his closeness, and walk in his power. So this table is Jesus' table. And if you'd like to walk with him today, just come to the table now as we participate in the Lord's Supper.